Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of E-Radio. I'm your host, Neil Kiernan. If this is your first time tuning in, please consider checking out my archives of shows going back all the way to 2008. Mind you, my personal political leanings have changed quite a bit in that time. So be aware that you're going to hear some things I don't necessarily agree with anymore, but I don't delete anything. Um, My guest today is going to be part of the Third Party Candidate Series. The Third Party Candidate Series is a series of podcasts that I have been doing, interviewing uh, basically candidates from all of the major third parties and any independents who want to come on. Um, And if you happen to support one of those candidates and you haven't heard them on my show, please reach out to them. I've had candidates from the Libertarian Party and the Green Party so far. Um, In the past, I've had candidates from the Socialist Party. I'm willing to literally have anybody who's a serious candidate on the show, even if I don't agree with them. So um, bearing that in mind, and I put this disclaimer in the description of this broadcast, that I don't necessarily agree with all of the views of the people that I'm bringing on. The point of this series is not as much about me and my personal views as it is, well, in one way it is, is that I feel that candidates outside of the major duopoly are not getting enough attention. And so I wanted to use my resources to help change that factor. Um, a little bit of history to you know, kind of frame this conversation is that For all of the talk about the Founding Fathers and the Constitution, you will notice that the party system is not in the Constitution. Um, I feel that the party system has essentially functioned like a computer virus or a malware on the system, that an enormous amount of control is being given to these bodies that we call political parties to determine the outcomes of our elections. And that was never intended in the drafting of the Constitution. George Washington being the only independent non-party president in the history of our country said in his farewell address that he was very wary of the party system and his reasons for being wary of it had to do with the idea that eventually people would stop caring as much about their country and more what was good for their party. Everything that Mr. Washington predicted came true. So um, please consider, you can follow my show on Face Create, a free blog talk radio account that will allow you to participate in the chat rooms for these broadcasts. Um, there is a phone number you can call in if you want to be, you know, basically if you want to ask questions of my guests or of me when I'm doing my broadcasts. Um, I've interviewed senators, congressmen, many presidential candidates, uh, documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists. And sometimes I just have shows where I invite a panel on to discuss current events. So bearing all that in mind, today my guest is Brian Currow. He is a independent candidate for the presidency. Uh, and you can check out his campaign website is linked in the description of this broadcast. Um, all I ask for you, the viewers or the listeners, as this case may be, is to share this podcast. I don't really make any money on it. Um, I did at one time, but at this point, I didn't really get involved in it again to make any money. But if you do want to support me on Patreon, that link is also available in the description. Um, And Brian, I want to go ahead and um, introduce you to the listeners. Welcome to V-Radio. Oh, one second. (laughs) There we go. Go ahead, Brian. (laughs) No problem. Thanks, Neil. Uh, I appreciate you. Thanks for inviting me, and I appreciate everything you're trying to do. Uh, It's definitely needed. Um, given, the, given the climate right now. Absolutely. So, Brian, my first question that I always ask a new guest is, what was the precipice moment for you? What was the moment that made you go from being a casual observer to politics to mm-hmm. being somebody who said, no, I, I've got to get involved? No. Okay. Excellent question. I'll tell you what. Um, I'm actually uh, from New England, so I was 
had a uh, casual relationship with politics. My family were really pretty involved in the, de- uh, the Democratic uh, Committee. And uh, so I've always been around it. And, and like you said, a casual observer. I've helped out in, in the past. Uh, but re- what really was a catalyst was um, about three years ago, uh, I'm an avid runner. And um, I, I'd done, I, I'm a, and a Marine. And what, I, what I'd done was I had, I had done a run across the country uh, to, raise, uh, to raise money for, to help wounded Marines. And what I did was I ran from California all along the border states up into, up into South Carolina from basically one boot camp to the other. And uh, along my journey, I got, it was quite an eye-opener because when you're, when you're at ground level and you're covering you know, 30, 30, 40 miles a day, you really get to see the country from a different perspective. And it was quite an eye-opener. And, and as my journey went along, I met, a lot of, I met a lot of wonderful people and saw some incredible things and uh, also saw some very uh, frustrating and, and, and depressing things. And uh, I got to probably outside of Abilene, Texas, and uh, uh, was so angry, became so angry and anxious, uh, I decided, you know, something had to be done um, because I just couldn't, stop, couldn't stand by and watch, you know, the people that I saw that were just struggling. And, you know, a lot of the towns I went through were, they were like ghost towns. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of the towns you go through and along the border, and it's probably worse now, uh, about 70% of the towns were boarded up and the people were traveling miles just to get to a, a minimum wage job that, that barely paid the bills. And uh, so that's when I decided something had to be done and the current system just wasn't working. So uh, I've always been the kind of person when I, where, there's a, where I see a need, I feel, it, I feel the, uh, the need to fill it. And that's when I decided that... Uh, you know, I had to do something about it, and someone, that somebody had to be me. Uh, I became so uh, passionate about it. And when you're running 3,200 miles, you have a lot of time to think. So by the time I got to the end of my run, I had, whole, I had a whole strategy formulated. And that's basically what got me into uh, to, to really become active in it. All right. So now you discussed, like, obviously what you did leading up to this. Um, was, was there any, like, specific catalyst that made you decide, okay, the way that I need to go about this is to run for president? Well, I, you know, I'd always been, up until that point, you know, that was, that was about the time that, um, you know, for the, that uh, the current administration uh, was really starting to come into, come into focus. And, uh, and like I said, I'd always been uh, uh, involved, somewhat involved, uh, in, in, the, in the Democratic uh, Party um, from a different perspective. Um, through my travels, I, would, I actually, um, when I was in the Marines, I traveled all over the world. And so we got to see a different perspective of things and how different countries, how, how different countries uh, work. And uh, the, the two-party system I saw was really, was broken. Um, and it was really rigged against the, uh, the average person. Uh, what the catalyst was, was, while I was running, up up until up until my run, you know the the news, watching the news and watching things develop, it was aggravating enough as it was. And so on my run, I was kind of insulated from that because I didn't get to see a lot of news and TV. And it wasn't until until I got into like Texas, I got to see, you know, um, I would stop off in these truck stops and I would resupply and things like that. And I would actually, I actually got to see the news then, and some of the things I saw were just really disheartening and really, uh, really uh, inspired me and motivated me to really do something about it. I mean, every time to, to see the, uh, and not to get too political, but 
to see the the current administration and how they were performing and behaving, it was so frustrating and it was almost like a slap in the face to the average average person. And I understand, you know, the the um, the current uh, Trump is actually he's more symptom he's a symptom of a much deeper issue that's that's, that's developed through our country, and it's just, it's been developing for the past 30 years, and it just kind of it's come come to a um, a boiling point, and and that's what that's what really uh, I decided that you know you can affect affect change at the at the, the the local level and the state level, which is is extremely important, but in order to really uh, give uh, the leadership that, that the country really needs to it's, uh, to change, you have to do it at the top level uh, because really the top is where, where everybody gets their leadership from. As you can see from the, you know, the, um, the current situation with, with, our, with this pandemic, um, you know, there's, nobody, there's nobody steering the ship, really. I mean, uh, it's like the car is, is on autopilot and there's nobody driving. Um, and so that's, that's what led me to really uh, to, to, to make a change and, and to, to, st- to stand up for you know, the average person. In, in the Marines, we used to have an expression, you know, if you take care of the troops, the mission takes care of itself. That was a core principle. And I believe the same thing can be said about a country. You know, if you take care of the people, the nation takes care of itself. Because when people are so focused on just trying to live and trying to support themselves, uh, they're not productive, they're anxious, um, and, and they, they, lose, they lose focus. And, and the country just kind of falls apart. Um, we've been so top-heavy that um, it's now it's time to flip that script where, you know, you focus on the people and everything else falls into place. Okay. So now I'm going to move on into our candidate questions. These are the same questions I've been asking of all of the other candidates. There'll be obviously some little sidelines that are going to end up happening in the conversation. So, um, the first one has to do with foreign policy, and this says to you know all of these questions should be understood to be framed from the perspective of if you were in the White House. Um, some of them will have timelines, uh, you know, so I'll basically be able to more or less kind of coalesce exactly what we're where we're getting at. Mm-hmm. So anyway, foreign policy first is a general foreign policy conversation. So, you know, you're the president. What is your approach to foreign policy? Um, in regards to when do we deploy the military, when do we not deploy the military, and if we're not going to use the military, you know, what is our diplomatic stances, et cetera? Okay, um, excellent question. You know, uh, and that's that's been something that's 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 been on my mind for quite some time. I mean, being being a, a marine, uh, I have I have intimate experience with both aspects of it, uh, and being used as as the tool of, of our government uh, to to extend its policies. Um, I believe, you know, we've, our, our country, you know, with the, with the creation of with the internet and globalization, it's communication travels now at light speed. So um, we are really, you know, a global community. Uh, things we do have an impact on, on the world. Um, and there was a time when, you know, America was a world leader where that people looked up to us for leadership and guidance. Um, you know, Everything we do has consequences, and we've developed relationships. And sometimes, you know, these relationships uh, run counter to each other, like as you saw with like the Turkey situation. Um, so it's a fine line, but it's it. But it, I, I think, um, you know, the, the expression, you know, uh, stand tall and carry a big stick. 
um, you don't always have to use the stick. Um, I think the first, you know, global, uh, globalized, we're, like I said, we're a global community, so we have to work with our, 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 our allies and, and also with our, with our adversaries uh, in order to, going back to the core principle, I think globally, if you take care of the people, the world kind of takes care of itself. So it's, uh, it's more of a humanitarian thing. I think our, our emphasis should be on the good of the people globally. So if there's a, if there's a crisis or there's something that's, there's an atrocity that's affecting one, one area, um, even if it's, even if one of us, are one of our allies, I think the priority is taking care of the people. So, um, and the first priority would be, you know, a, a diplomatic, di- diplomatic means. I mean, you can, you can, using diplomatic, uh, the tools, you know, sanctions and things like that, uh, and working together as a coalition, uh, you can affect positive change, uh, but it has to be done the right way, and, and it has to be followed through. Uh, you can't just level, you know, um, outrageous accusations and, and, and it, it, it outrageous. You can't bully people. Um, there has to be a follow-through with it. I think as a last resort, you know, uh, the military option or the nuclear option, I'm not saying nuclear weapons, but the military option should be used as a last resort, um, and, and, and sometimes it is necessary. So um, I think, like I said, uh, we all have to work together. We have this, this one planet we're responsible for, and we're responsible for every person in the planet. Um, but uh, we all work together to accomplish that. And that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of like as far as the uh, foreign policy is concerned, that, that we all have to work together and move together in the, right, in the same direction. Okay, so now we go to the elaborations on the foreign policy question. The first one would be, what would you do in the event of a major terrorist attack like 9-11, meaning, you know, it's not exactly 9-11, but on the right. same scale, would you on go to war? Scale, right. Would you take other actions? Well, you know, the, the one thing is, if you notice, in most terrorist acts, and, and, uh, and that was part of the function that I performed in the, in the Marines, um, that most terrorist acts are, are perpetrated by, you know, extreme groups. It's not like a nation is terrorizing another nation. It's usually it's some extreme group um, is terrorizing for their own uh, own purposes or, or so um, I think what what you, what we first have to do is you know is something for example like a ter- uh, a nine eleven type attack or, or or level attack would happen to us or even one of our allies um, mm. it, it, what we first we have to, we have to strategically deal with that uh, first of all we have to identify the identify the perpetrator who actually did it. Um, without reasonable, without without a reasonable doubt, um, and then in order to really uh, assert pressure, and uh, we need to assemble like a global coalition. We need to bring all, all our forces to bear and our, our allies to bear to bring justice, uh, bring these people to justice. I look at it like they're, they're criminals. They're not. It's you know somebody they talk call about the war on terror and things like that. You know and the it's not like you're you're not like you're going against an army where you know, they don't have uniforms they don't have it's they're um they're criminals and they need to be treated as criminals so uh then we uh, initially depending on which once you've identified that identified the perpetrators you need to you know uh deal with it uh first diplomatically and get other all the uh the global coalition to exert pressure and bring them to justice whether they're harbored in another country or you know, um, and bring them to justice. If that, with, with sanctions and whatnot, um, and again, as a last resort, if that doesn't work, um, 
you need to we need to um, exercise a, a, a strategic military action, um, like we do with Osama bin Laden, um, so that we strategically only bring the perpetrators to justice and and not punish, um, you know, uh, collateral damage, uh, create collateral damage and punish people that aren't uh, aren't necessarily at fault. So that, basically, basically more of a deal with a situation like that. More of a surgical response as opposed to say invading an entire country. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. Right. You know, like That's I don't like, agree with like, Israel's policies on a lot of things, but when the those terrorists killed some of their Olympic athletes, they didn't invade any countries. Right. They went and found the people who did it and got every single one of them. Um, so I, I see where you're coming from them with that. Um, right. Exactly. Exactly. That's like that's like now, burning the house down because the toilet doesn't work. Right. Right. Exactly. Not to mention you're inevitably going to get a whole lot of innocent people hurt. So. Right. Um, so the second follow up is to ask, what would you do, if anything, as president, if you were confronted with the current situation in Syria? Okay. Uh, again, it goes back to the kind of the core principle. I mean, the the situation in Syria, that whole region. Uh, has historically been a conflict area. You know, they, they've been fighting for for decades, for you know, centuries. So, um, so for for us to go in uh, and exert our 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 means on them or our our way of life on them, you know, um, is is counterproductive because it's it doesn't it doesn't create the kind of results that 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 the desired results that we need. Um, Again, it's, it's you know it's a complex issue with several actors. I mean, you got you got Russia involved, you got Turkey, you got um, and, and Russia has actually learned their lesson. Uh, they've 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 kind of backed down now because they realize you know that that their um, you know uh, Bashar al-Assad he's a brutal dictator. So um, and he's perpetrated you know crimes against his own people. And ultimately, it's a humanitarian crisis. So again, it kind of goes back to that core principle: you can take take care of the people. So it needs to be a global coalition it's not for us to go in and we're not the we're not the the world's nine nine one one uh but we do sure. have a we do have an obligation to to show leadership and direction as as the moral moral compass and so um we need to deal with it as more of like a humanitarian crisis uh and 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 gather our resources and our global assets and global uh, allies in order to exert exert pressure um, and again, it goes back to that first first would be the diplomatic pressure um, and exhaust those, all those avenues first. Uh, I would do that. And then um, if, if that if that didn't uh, achieve the desired results, then uh, you, you assemble a, a, a global coalition and then uh, you basically put out the fire. OK, so um, moving right along, we come to the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, this conversation basically first allows you to rewind to um, three months ago, and then we're going to move on to what you would do if you literally became president today. So first, three months ago, um, we're in that situation where essentially the virus is just starting to become public knowledge. Uh, You know, there's some warnings from China um, and we are in that state that we were in as far as preparation. What would you do differently, essentially, three months ago as president of the United States? 
So, okay, so three months ago as President of the United States, I would have first of all acknowledged the threat. Um, it's like going to the doctor and the doctor tells you, you know, tells you you've got a, 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 an illness and then you mm. just go home and, and you take chicken soup. Um, you, you know, and just kind of uh, just get, ignore it and, and hope it goes away. Uh, it's not going to go away. Uh, and, and, and all the, all the information that we received, the credible information we received was, has, has, has borne fruit and shown, shown that, that it was, that was true, that it was, that, that was some, some, some merit to it. So, uh, first of all, we would acknowledge the threat and we did have systems in place. So I would, I would utilize all the resources capable, um, to, in order to prepare. And it kind of goes, kind of goes back to that philosophy, you know, people don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. Um, sure. And you have to have you have to have mechanisms and systems in place, and we have those, had those. Um, but you have to really shore up your resources. Um, it's like you know, there's a street gang coming to town, and and you know they're they're, they're going to cause trouble. So what do you do? You you lock the house and turn on the turn on the alarm system. Mm. Um, so um, without without totally disrupting our, our, our life, you have to prepare for the eventuality. That's what we should have done three months ago. And follow the advice of the medical professionals. I mean, they know they're the professionals. They know what they're talking about. Um, and then prepare for the in- inevitability. I mean, we have to be able to, you have to be able to identify it, test it. Uh, um, you know, stock, we, we, sh- we should have, uh, we should have rebuilt our stockpiles of our, our, our personal protection gear uh, and equipment that was, that we knew we were going to need. I, I'm one of those people. I would rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Um, so uh, one of the things I've actually devised. Uh, oh, actually, this, I'm kind of get ahead of myself. Oh no, um, was is uh, I put together what's called the Emergency Relief Act, and and, and part of the part of the um, part of the solution is yes, we have to we have to prepare for the prepare for the inevitability that it's gonna it's gonna come, but we also have to prepare that it's gonna disrupt our our, our daily life. So we have to prepare, you know, again, it goes back to taking care of the people. We have to provide them the resources that they continue, that they can continue to live um, productive uh, lives within, within the confines of what's happening, um, that they have the resources to, 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 to take care of the people as far as their health care, and, and, you know, eventually, you know, they're going to be affected. So you need to be able to take care of them. So the health care, being able to take care of them uh, is a, is a extremely important so all those things need to be thought of in advance um and we should have we we had systems in place we should have really primarily just acknowledged the threat from that point and and gone from there that it's here by the time by the time we really you realize it's happening it's too late because it's already there it's like it's like you know um so uh, as far as you know today you want me to go into today? What, what do we do as a Oh, yeah. That, that moves us on to today, basically, is like, you know, you, you're president right now. Okay. So as of right now, if I was president right now, for some reason, I walked into the White House, uh, one of the things I would do is I would, uh, I would study the successes of the different countries that were, that, that were successful, that had successfully dealt with it, and then follow their lead, try to incorporate some of their policies. Granted, I mean – we're we're at a different level than they are. Uh, we're a lot, much larger country than than most of these other countries that that have experienced it. But you can still scale their uh, their practices, their best practices to 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 to, uh, to basically deal with the situation. So one of the things that you know that that we found is extremely successful. I mean, you look at like New Zealand things like that. You know, they had the enhanced testing. You know, you have to be able to identify 
who is really uh, affected with it. And there are a lot. Of, there are situations where you know if someone's asymptomatic. You can't tell that they're affected with it, and you can't tell that unless they've been tested. So we need to do an enhanced testing. And one of the things that we found in these countries that, are, that have been very successful is they've done exhaustive contact tracing. So once you've determined somebody has somebody's, somebody's um, infected, then you have to trace on everybody that, that, they've, um, that they've come in contact with and isolate them so that they don't spread it to somebody else. Um, it's like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with multi-level marketing, like Amway and Herbalife. Yes. It's, it's, it's like that. I mean, you talk to five people and they talk to five people. Before you know it, it's got a life of its own and you don't know who you talk to and who's out there and who's talking to, you know, it's, it's even more so with a virus because you can't see it. Um, so, uh, and the other thing I would do is, um, you know, um, now that we've got one of the highest unemployment since, you know, um, since the Great Depression, and, it's, and it seems like it's only going to get worse, um, one of the things we need to do is we need to provide financial support for the average person. What we, need, what we needed to do before, and, and it's not too late, is you know, we need to get these people back to work or at least get them employed or paid. Um, and in order to do that, we need to salvage our small businesses because they're, they're the lifeblood of this country. And so uh, what we need to do is, you know, rather than subsidize major corporations, because these corporations have mechanisms that can deal with this, they're going to survive. Um, and they have mechanisms to deal with this, this sort of situation or, or, or catastrophic uh, economic uh, catastrophe for them. But small businesses like the, the local mom and pop, the local restaurant or the barber or, you know, the mechanic, um, they don't have the resources that they do. So we need to provide them the resources and be, allow them to, to maintain their employees because what's going to happen is once this is over, a lot of these, these businesses are going to be out of business because they just don't have the resources to, to, to keep going. And the ones that are back in business, uh, they've got to hire new people or hire the people back. And, and in some cases, the people that were hired have gone on a different job, so they're going to have to find new workers, and they're going to have to train them. It's much more efficient if you pay the people you already have and keep them, uh, keep them employed, even if they're not, you know, even if they're not working, they're, they're, they're staying home uh, to prevent the spread of the virus, but at least you know, they're, they're taken care of. And when, when we get through this, which I'm confident we will, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next month, but they'll be, they'll, you'll have those people back and they'll be able to, you'll be able to pick up right where you left off because you've got your trained employees. You don't have to hire new people and retrain people. Um, so that's, that's the other thing. And the, um, the other thing is um, we need to stabilize that. It would stabilize the economy because these people, they're getting paid and they can still, they're still contributing to the economy. They're still paying taxes. They're still contributing. To the so it's like they never really stop working. It's just they're on a leave of absence. Um, and then we need to support the American, Americans. It's a, it's a, again, it's that core principle because if you take care of the people, you know, then the country will take care of itself. We would, if we had done that from the beginning, we would not, not have been in this position that we're in now economically uh, because the, the wheels would have kept turning. People would still would have had resources. And then, and then there's the other thing. There's the infrastructure. You know, we've got a whole breakdown of, you know, the basic necessities. I mean, you go to any store and, and there, you can't get you can't get your basic uh, basic supplies. The, the the food food supply, the 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 equipment, um, and that's all broken down because of the infrastructure um, has has dissolved. Uh, because you've got people that aren't working that, you know, these companies don't, won't use other resources. So those, that infrastructure need, needs to be uh, shored up. 
so that we, that the, the the wheels keep turning, so that, our, that that the country keeps moving. Okay. So that's going to bring us to a segue into healthcare. As president, what is your role, if any, in ensuring that anyone, no matter what their financial situation, gets access to quality health care? Okay. I hate to sound like a broker record, but again, it goes back to my core principle. You take care of the people, the nation takes care of itself. Health care, if you're, if, if you're not healthy, you know, a healthy person is a productive person. So I'm, a, I'm a 100% behind expanding Medicare or universal health care so that everybody has health care. Um, it's just, it's not a it's not a luxury. It's, it's a, it's a right to everyone because, it, because um, again, it's, uh, it, it takes care of the people and, and it helps, helps the, the country keep moving forward. Uh, and it also takes a lot of the pressure off. And if you're worried about, you know, a, a, a lot of people, there's a great majority of the people that are afraid to go to the doctor because they don't have insurance or they have, they're underinsured. Um, so uh, it, it becomes, we become a less healthy environment, a less healthy, uh, healthy com- com- country uh, because these people aren't getting the proper health care. So um, what I would do is I would, uh, in, in order to in- increase, you know, uh, expand Medicare, which would be the easiest thing to do, um, is that, um, you know, the average person contributes less than 2% towards Medicare. And so what that works out to is about $240 a month on, on average that American contributes to Medicare. Uh, and then you've got the, the employers uh, match that. So you've got about 4% going towards, uh, towards Medicare. What I would do is I would increase the contribution uh, when you compare it against uh, the, the average person. The average person spends um, about $800 a month on insurance. So um, if you increase, even increase the Medicare contribution to 4% from the employee and then 4% for the, for the employer, you've got 8%, which uh, vastly increases the resources and, and enable us to, to give everybody uh, Everybody, uh, medic, um, healthcare. Uh, they're covered in healthcare, uh, and and you would do like not to get in too much detail, but you'd have like you have right now. You get Medicare A, Medicare B, and Medicare Part C. You know, Medicare A, the basic Medicare would cover all basic ex- basic expenses, um, just just prorative and and uh, palliative care, um, and also would cover vision, hearing, and uh, dental, so that the basic needs of everybody's met. Now, if you wanna, um, as you get older and you become more um, have more needs, then you can expand your Medicare and get, you know, get into like a, a Medicare Part D, B, uh, uh, advanced, enhanced Medicare, which would cover those, those other costs that the average person doesn't need. And then, of course, as you get older, when you need, when you, uh, need uh, catastrophic care, you have a, a, a Medicare, enhanced Medicare, which would cover those expenses. I've, I also have developed a couple of other, other programs that are going to also supplement the money that's generated from these uh, Medicare deductions. But again, when you compare what we're contributing now and what we'd be contributing then compared to what we're paying the average person pays for insurance, it would pay for everybody and it would still cost less than we're paying for healthcare now. Now, the other thing is we have to analyze where we're at because our healthcare costs are astronomical. So, and what, that's one of the reasons why, like a lot of healthcare providers, don't like to mm-hmm. take Medicare. They make it as difficult as possible to take some of these programs. Uh, because um, because Medicare determines what they can charge, um, and a lot of it has to do with part of that has to do with the fact that you know someone who who doesn't have have, have health care and they have a catastrophic injury or they have something they have they have a, a serious need. What do they do? They go to the they go to the emergency room, 
And they don't pay the emergency room, but what ends up happening is the emergency room costs are 10 times as much as, as a regular, it would be regular service, and then we end up paying that, so it costs us more. Now, if everybody has health care, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a, an issue because not everybody can get, can go to their general practitioner. They can go and get their their basic needs met. So we need to analyze where we're at now, and then exact measures to address you know the broken system. Basically, you know what I would do is I would go to some of the other successful, and there's no there's no need to reinvent the wheel. There are other countries that are doing much better at their healthcare system than we are. I would analyze what they're doing and trying to and try to incorporate that into what what you know our our ongoing or our ongoing healthcare system which would reduce these costs and provide, you know, the, the kind of care that, that Americans, you know, deserve and need. Um, and, and, of course, there's also the, the drug costs and things like that. I mean, that's a whole other issue. Um, and what, what we do, what that would, what, what that would do as well um, as a collateral benefit would be um, it would eliminate the need for employer health care because the you know, majority of Americans get their health care from their employers. Well, one of the problems with that is you can see what's exactly what happened with this crisis is if you lose your job, you lose your health care. Um, and so what a lot of these employers are doing, they're using their health care as a tool to manipulate the employers, employees uh, to behave. So they threaten them, you know, if you, if you don't, um, you know, you, you don't stand step in line, you know, we'll let you go and then you lose your health care. Uh, and then you start all over and then you're uninsured uh, and it causes stress, more stress on, on, on the economy. Um, by eliminating that need for employer health care, what it would do is it would also allow the employers, now that they're not having to pay for health care, they can raise the wages of their employees. So those, those are, are, are side benefits to uh, increase expanding the Medicare and giving uh, health care for everybody. So that's basically where, <laughs> that's where I look at like that, that, uh, advancing the health care costs. Everybody should have health care. And it would okay. pay for itself. So now we move on to education, more specifically college. Uh, obviously, this has been a hot topic in this election. Um, what role as president would you take to see that, it is, that anyone, no matter what their financial situation is, gets access to a higher education? Okay. Um, I, I'm actually, um, my undergraduate was in education, so I'm, I'm uh, intimately familiar with with that process in that situation because uh, I had I had student loans so I understand that and uh, I was had massive debt from student loans I think as a as a starting point all public edu- all public schools um, you know you go from kindergarten to twelfth it's it's free edu- it's 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 free well we pay for our taxes but it's basically you don't pay extra for that right so um, I think beyond that public edu- public schools should be the same thing whether you go to a, a a vocational school, a technical school, or like a public university, um, it should be uh, it should be free. Uh, and and I've actually I, I've actually developed a mechanism that would pay for that, so it wouldn't cost cost anything more. Uh, it wouldn't create an unnecessary burden, more taxes, or more burden on the economy. Um, and as far as like the student loans, um, I I also have an idea where you're basically um, if you wanted to go to like even like a private school. Um, you would uh, you could apply for a grant that would be funded from a, a self-funding program, and basically the way it works is it's not it's really a loan, but it, it doesn't cost anything because the way it works is you you could apply for a, a, a let's say a fifty thousand dollar on average it costs about fifty thousand dollars for a, a, a an undergraduate for for a basic undergraduate degree, um, 
So you apply for 50, your $50,000 $50, loan, and that $50,000 loan uh, gets you to your gets you to your your pays for your um, pay for your school, and then once you're out, you've got a year to start making those payments. Uh, those payments are actually tax deductible, all right? And then, so basically, it ends up being a grant, really. You're making a payment, but it actually gets deducted, so it doesn't really cost anything, and it goes back into the pool so more people can get, can get uh, apply for these loans. Um, what that does is I've seen time and time again, you know, people get these grants, uh, people get a loan, and unless you're really motivated and really driven, um, if you're given, if you're given it, it's given to you, People tend not to be as as um, ambitious. Uh, it's so in, in order for them to have some some sweat in the game that they know we're gonna have to pay it back. You have you're gonna have to work for it. Um, people tend to be more focused. People tend to be more uh, more involved. And the other thing is part of that program you would do uh, required to do mm-hmm. ten uh, ten hours a week of community service in your related field. So what that would do is like healthcare education. Uh, it would it would uh, relieve some of the pressure from our from our educators, and it would also provide you an opportunity to basically uh, like a work study program. You would learn, you would work in your field, and then also be in a position to fill that job once you graduate. You would have an opportunity to fill those jobs once you graduate. So uh, your education would be paid for. You get you would get real time experience. You would be contributing to the to the to the culture and contributing to the the, the economy, um, and then. You would go forth from there, and you wouldn't be an un, you wouldn't have a burden by the time you graduated. Now, these also these 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 loans would also be available for people that already have student loans, so that they would apply for that, and it would basically pay off parts of their loans or, or their loans, so that the same thing would work out. Um, their education would be paid for, and it would relieve a lot of the stress from these people that are have thousands and thousands of, uh, of student debt. Okay. Does that answer your question? So, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now we come to a conversation that is relevant to both the right and the left. I mean, everybody inevitably ends up getting asked this. Uh, oh, we talk about abortion, yeah. uh, pro-choice, pro-life. What role as president do you feel you would play in this issue? Okay, I um, my my biggest uh, motivation or my biggest inspiration has always been my mother, and and I've I've. I've come to appreciate the value, or, and all men should do this, but I'll appreciate the value of, of a strong, strong-willed woman. <laughs> um, and I believe, you know, it's not. I'm a, just to get it put it out there. I'm a pro-choice person, right? I believe it's not my place to tell a woman what she can and can't do with her body, um, uh, because there are there are needs that they have that that we don't, and it's not my place to tell them what they can do. Um, now. As far as abortion is concerned, I don't believe um, and this is a deviation from what a lot of uh, uh, liberals and Democrats will believe, um, but I, I don't think I'm alone on this. I don't believe abortion should be used as a form of birth control. Uh, but I do believe that, again, it's not my place to tell them what they can do with their body, but I do believe that it is extremely necessary or important and critical um, in, in situations where the, the mother's life is in jeopardy or, the, or um, you know, in, in situations of, like, rape or incest, um, it's not – they didn't choose that, you know. So it's not my place to tell them they can't – you know, why should I ruin their lives, uh, lives because of something that – that'd be like someone, you know, uh, someone broke into your house and, and, and stabbed you, uh, and, you and now you're, 
you're um, you're being penalized because you are a victim. Uh, I don't believe that's 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 right, and I don't believe um, uh, going forward we should we should allow that. Um, again, like I said, though, I don't believe abortion should be used. That's my personal opinion that you should be used as a form of, uh, of birth control. But I believe it's it's not my it's not my decision. It's not for me to tell them what they can do. Okay, no, that's fair. Um, well, when it comes to because inevitably this is how it uh, I've like since reviewed this how it ends up affecting the presidency is just like. They're always concerned about what Supreme Court judges people would appoint. And given that question, would you appoint a pro-choice or a pro-life judge to the Supreme Court as president? A pro-life or pro-choice? I, um, I would appoint a I would appoint a, a Supreme Court um, a Supreme Court judge, somebody that uh, believes in humanity. Somebody um, I don't believe. Well, for one thing, I and this is kind of an aside, um, I don't believe religion is at any place in politics. So I think you know, your, your religious beliefs are your guiding principle for your personal choices, but not as a nation. So if, if a Supreme Court nominee shows a, procl- shows a procl- proclivity of, of, of their decisions being guided by, by the religious choices, religion, religious beliefs, I don't believe that's, a, I don't believe that's in the best interest uh, of the country as a whole. So... Um, Again, I know it didn't really answer your question, but uh, I think it's more humanity. It goes back to you know taking care of the people. It's not it's not my place, and I think they should they should um, they should hold the same kind of belief or the understanding that I do that that they're that they're um, uh, Switzerland, you know that they're unbiased. I don't think they should lean one way or the other. Other. Okay. Um, so that moves us on to the environment. The first part of the environment question is a general environmental discussion, mm. basically just what the government's policies should be, and more specifically, what your role as president would be in protecting our environment. Okay. Um, excellent question. And that's something that's, that's, that's really important to me. Um, again, like I said, I've, I've traveled a lot of the world, and I've seen what the abuses to our environment uh, in some of these other countries uh, and, and, and even our own country. Um, anybody that doesn't believe that, that we as humans have an impact on the, on the earth is fooling themselves. They're either being disingenuous or they're just um, they're ignoring, the, or ignoring reality. Uh, because uh, with, with, the, with the urban sprawl and, 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 uh, and all the effects that we've done to, our, to, to, the, to the world, um, it has definitely had an impact on our environment, and re- really, at this point, um, there's no there's no reversing it. Um, it's like uh, when you've got a, a, a steamship is in full steam ahead, and you stop the engines, right? Um, it's still going to keep going. So if we stop everything we're doing negatively to, to negatively impact the Earth right now, it's going to still keep going. It'll go slower. Um, the 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 reality is. Um, this the earth is unsustainable for us because we've created we've done so much damage and that's going to continue even if we stop it's not going to it's not going to reverse I mean there are some things we can do to reverse it but it's not going to completely stop it so we have an obligation um, you, you know we have an obligation to provide a sustainable and livable environment for the people after us um, and it's it's uh, irresponsible for us to just keep going the way we're going uh, and just assume that, you know, hey, you know, I've had my, ch- I've had my time. You know, when I, was, when I was growing up, my, my mom really instilled upon me, you know, if, 
when you rent a house or rent an apartment or rent it somewhere, you always want to leave it better than when you found it. Um, and that's really kind of my approach to that is that, is that we need to leave it. We need to leave for our, for the, the, those that follow us a sustainable livable environment. And there are things we can do to, to uh, negate what we're doing, what, the damage we've done. Again, we can't stop it. We can't reverse it, but we can, we can uh, or, or to an extent we can, but we can't completely stop it. So um, as far as going forward uh, as a president, you know, one of the, as the president, what I would do is I've got some, I've got some programs that I've developed that will, will convert. Well, one of the things we, we, we need to do is we need to transition from um, fossil fuels to, to uh, uh, sustainable uh, clean energy. Um, and I've, I've, I've been working with uh, some, some, some gentlemen uh, that have developed a program that, that could feasibly um, replace all, the ener- all our energy needs uh, with natural uh, clean energy um, that, would, that would sustain the, our entire country. And we could transition to that within 10, 10 years. Um, the other thing uh, we need to do is we need to, uh, I w- on day one, the first thing I would do is I would, I would rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Um, because again, we are not alone. It, we are global. We are global citizens, and so everything we do affects the rest of the world, just like everything that the other countries. And without a voice in, in voice in that uh, in, in that organization or a voice, um, there's nothing we can do. We ha- we have no we have no um, position if we don't if we don't participate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Um, now that brings us to the issue of global warming and climate change specifically. If there was anything you didn't address in your previous thing that you'd like to add to this as well. Um, but basically this is about, you know, do you feel that uh, global warming is a threat and how would you as president address it? Well, I, I absolutely. Like I said, absolutely. It's a, I believe it's a threat because, um, you know, with, with the damage we've done, done to the, to our environment, and, and the pollutants we've been putting into the environment, unless we reverse those, um, you know, it's, uh, the world's not sustainable, um, you know, on the one level. I mean, yeah, there, the, the sea levels are rising, you know, temperatures are rising. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, on, in addition to that, though, much beyond that, you know, those are symptoms of a much deeper issue. Uh, the deeper issue is um, the, 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 the world, the globe is, is being ravaged and has a disease. And what's happening is, you know, it's, it's having ecological uh, effects and um, geological effects on the world, which is going to only get worse as, unless we, we take um, drastic measures or we take serious measures um, to, to reverse it or to stop it, uh, to mitigate it. Um, but it, it is a threat. It is a serious um, threat. And like I said, if, if people who don't believe that we're, we're, we're having a result, an impact on our environment, are being either being disingenuous or, or they're just being uh, irrational, unrealistic. Okay. So um, you did a really good job tearing through all of those. We have plenty of time left, so I'd like to move on to the <laughs> questions, provided there was, we have time. Okay. Okay. There was, um, actually, there was actually Go ahead. The Sorry. education one. Yeah, the, the education one, there was something else I wanted to kind of like a cop, add to that, but maybe I could probably add that to the end. It's your time. Go ahead. No, just do it now so we don't okay. forget. Sorry. Yeah. So, so, so basically, with the education, you know, um, uh, one of the things that that seriously impacted our economy, um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, 
globalization and they blame they blame globalization and outsourcing jobs and things like that um, uh, as having an adverse effect uh, impact on our economy or, or, or our jobs and things like that. Um, but really, what's 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 the real um, real cause of that or, or contributing to that is you know the technology, the advances in technology. I mean, you look at like artificial intelligence and mechan- uh, mechanics, um, and and you. Uh, you look at so those over the past you know the 30 30 years 30 40 years we've been on this trajectory where you know a lot of our jobs have been lost not because of globalization that's part of it but because because of advances of tech in technology and intelligence artificial intelligence you go to any store now and you've got self checkouts you go to a, a lot of um, a lot of these fast food places and you've got these kiosks where you order your food and there's not even a person there anymore what that does is it leaves a big void because those jobs um, can be replaced by uh, by mechanics, but what what we have as a big void is is the um, skilled trades, plumbers, electricians, carpenters. Those kind of things can never be replaced by mechanics or artificial intelligence. And so uh, we have a, a huge huge deficit in those areas uh, and need for those. And so what we've done is systematically throughout the years uh, we've eliminated those kind of training in the school systems. So. One of the one of the things I would do is I would reintegrate back into the school system skilled trades. I mean, I remember growing up, we had wood shop, and we had auto mechanics, and um, you know, a lot of these places don't have that anymore unless you go to like a technical school. So those, so it gives them. A, not everybody's going to go to college, and not everybody needs to go to college. But and and there are these thousands and thousands of jobs that are being unfilled because we don't have the skilled trades, uh, the skilled people to do those. And so that's one of the things I would integrate back into the system to fill those jobs and because those jobs will never replace. So that's kind of what that one thing I, I kind of bypassed there, but that's one no, of the things okay. that we also add to our education system. Okay. So now we come to the war on drugs and this has to okay. do with obviously just trying to assess should drugs be legal? Should they not be legal? Um, should certain drugs be decriminalized? Should all drugs be decriminalized? Um, what, if any, uh, role do you feel as president you would take in the issue of the war on drugs? Okay. So, again, uh, when, when we use the term war, it, 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 it strikes the, uh, the tone of, you know, it's a military action. Uh, they're criminals. So uh, we need to treat them as criminals. I don't believe all drugs should be, should be um, legalized. Um, however, on the, on the one, one hand, um, I, I don't, as far as, and this kind of, this kind of crosses over into the criminal justice system. I, I don't, I believe, you know, well, for one thing, I, I think uh, marijuana should be legalized. I mean, uh, there are, the majority of Americans feel the same way, and, and there's a lot of supporting evidence that, you know, I was involved in the health field and a couple of nonprofit uh, organizations. And um, so I, I know the benefits of, you know, uh, the medical benefits of these. And, and, and years and years ago, um, they were used, Used for medical purposes uh, until they were uh, until they were um, uh, made illegal. Um, and what you've got is you've got a whole. What we've got is we've got a whole uh, group of people that are being uh, marginalized because of of these nonviolent crimes that deal with you know uh, drug possession things like that. So I would think we we need to decriminalize at least marijuana and make it legal. And and you see in like some states that have already done that. Um, you know, it, it's a, it can be a tremendous source of revenue that would also help feed our, our health care system. 
So that's what I would do is I would, I would make it legal across the country and use the resources, use the, uh, the revenues that are generated from that, which would be um, uh, astrono- uh, phenomenal, uh, towards, uh, towards our health, uh, supplementing our health care costs. Um, now, as far as, the, as far as the other drugs, um, those are, uh, I don't think, like I said, I don't think all drugs should be, should be legalized. But I also don't think that um, they should be, you know, for lesser offenses, you should be criminalized. Because it, what it does is it creates this, this cycle of recidivism for, for nonviolent crimes. Um, and, and you've got generations upon generations. It has generational impact on, these, on, on certain cultures, uh, especially uh, minorities, um, that can never break that cycle. And until we actually do something to do that, uh, we're going to continue to have that that um, downward trend. Okay. Uh, if, if that answers your question. <laughs> no, no, I think that was fine. So, um, and you did talk a little bit about criminal justice, but criminal justice reform as a question generally has to do with, um, you know, like how do we treat prisoners? Uh, you know, right. is there any rehabilitation? You know, like how would you approach criminal justice pre- um, reform? Okay. So, that excellent question. That's another thing that I that, that's that's pretty pretty uh, dear to me. Um, I think our, our criminal justice system right now is 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 uh, distorted. Where it's it's um it needs we need to transition our criminal justice or transform it from a uh, to re from to rehabilitation as opposed to incarceration um, because we need to prepare these people to transition uh, back into the real world and. Really, um, I think one of the things, uh, one of the reasons uh, that our criminal justice system is is the way it is, is because we've got these these for-profit prisons that you know that, that it's in their best interest. It's like any 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 for-profit um, endeavor is to make money, so it's in their best interest to have more people in prison, um, so and have them there longer and keep them and keep repeat customers. Uh, and there's also 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 other things that are that that are um, not just being you know being incarcerated, but there's all sorts of other other ways that these these um, you know um, people are being uh, taken advantage of while they're in prison um, that need to be addressed and you know um, again it really what it comes down to is we need to rehabilitate them rather than incarcerate them and we need to train them to transition I, I think uh, you know the nonviolent crimes um, you, the the punishment should should fit the crime I don't think um, you know, and, and I think there's a bias in our in our criminal justice system, and that needs to be addressed. Um, there's a reason why, you know, majority of, you know, um, there are a lot more minorities that are incarcerated than uh, than non-minorities, um, and I think that needs to be addressed. Uh, and again, it goes back to that, you know, taking care of the people. We've created this cycle where, you know, that they can't break out of that cycle, and it's generational. Uh, you know, their father was in prison, and they're going to end up in prison, and uh, we need to break that cycle and give them hope. I mean, there are there are a fraction of a fraction of, of people that, that get beyond that, but by creating this environment, uh, it just it just keeps perpetuating that that uh, cycle. Um, so we need to transition away from that. Okay. So that brings us on to now we're at a state where essentially you get an opportunity to address the American voter. Um, you know, going over a lot of your policies, I would say in general, the majority of the people who would probably be attracted to your presidency, just based on what you've said to me today, 
would probably be Democrats, but um, that doesn't mean that Republicans wouldn't be interested in supporting you as well, particularly given the crazy options that we currently have in the major parties. So um, let's just say I'm an undecided voter and I, I'm looking for something else. What, what would you say as an independent candidate that you bring to the table that neither of the major parties currently do? And why should I give you my vote as opposed to one of them? Excellent question. And, and that's actually that's the core principle of my campaign. And again, it goes back to that, that uh, you know, taking care of the people. You know, our, our political system, you know, and most Americans will agree to this, you know, we've reached a tipping point. It, they'll agree that it's rigged and it's rigged against them. It's not so much against – it's not so much – and I look at it this way. I'm not – I'm not running against a Democrat or Republican. I'm running for Americans in general. So uh, we're all heading the same. We're all heading the same direction. We all have the same same goals. We all want to get through this together and get to the to the finish line. Um, and what the difference? The, the biggest difference between my approach or what I offer is that you know our our two main pol- uh, our two main parties it, it, we become so partisan and so tribal. Um, over the past 30 years, and it's just gotten, it's reached a fever, a fever pitch now, where um, not since the Civil War have we, have we been this divided ideologically. Um, and so what I bring to the table is that, you know, everybody's welcome. You know, we're all going the same way. My whole thing is I want to unify the country and stop the, and break that cycle. It's not about Democrat or Republican. It's about being an American. And it's about, it's not about, you know, beating the Democrat or the Republican. It's it's the, the the average person against the establishment and the oligarchy. They're the ones, you know. You look at like wages have stayed stagnant. You've got you know um, massive amounts of money that are that are poured into campaigns. So these small percentage of people are are basically have the most say of the country. And and what they're doing is they're protecting their interests and they're protecting their assets. And both parties, to a certain extent, um. Are, I always say they're two sides of the same coin. Um, the establishment Democrats and the establishment Republicans um, are really bent on, you know, uh, their corporate and uh, establishment support supporters uh, and special interests. Um, it goes back to, you know, if you take care of the people, they, the country takes care of itself. In business, you've noticed that, you know, um, when, a, when a business is top-heavy, when everything is geared towards the owners and the CEOs and, and, them, and them making their, you know, uh, making their share, uh, the people that suffer are, are the working people. Uh, and as you see this, with this crisis now, it's, it's, uh, it's extremely brings it to the forefront because nothing is done. Nothing gets done. Uh, without, without that common person, this country, this country doesn't exist. It doesn't work. Um, and it, as, as far as, you know, you, you, there's some ideological difference between the two parties. Uh, the one hand, on the one hand, you've got the Republicans. They're, they're, always, they're very aggressive uh, for, their, for their ideas. Uh, and, the, and the problem with the, thing with the Democrats, they tend to be more towards the people, but I would say they've got no teeth. Um, they, comp- they compromise too quickly and they compromise too often, uh, and they don't fight for the people. So what, what, I, what I offer is, you know, I'm a Marine. I'm a fighter. I fight for the people, and, I, and um, that's my first priority. Anytime I, anytime I make a decision on something, the first question I ask is who benefits most from it. If it's not the average person, if it's not the common man, then it's not something we need to pursue. Okay. 
So I guess, um, you know, being as that we've gone through all of the standard stuff, um, I now feel I can actually just engage with you in a conversation. If you're comfortable with that, just like to do some of my yeah, own sure. observations. Um, one of the things that led to me doing this series in particular just had to do with, like, as I said a little bit in the beginning, is the the party system. And when you talk about the common man, um, you know, I think that, a lot of people are not familiar with some of the, the history of our country that doesn't really get talked about in the history books. And, um, for example, there are a lot of people who venerate the founding fathers. And I'm not saying that they didn't have a lot of good ideas. They did. But um, being as how my political mentor was Senator Mike Gravel, um, he was researching uh, legislation because he wanted to see a constitutional amendment passed to allow for democratic referendums basically a uh, just like you see in a lot of the states where you can put something on the ballot with sufficient signatures you know petition and then be able to vote on it and they usually you get a lot of good done you know a lot of good things done that way um not always i mean obviously sometimes the majority mm-hmm. might have some ideas that may not be good for everybody that lives in that state um you know, but overall, like, you know, for example, marijuana legalization frequently ends up on the ballot and ends up passing. Um, sometimes there's circumstances like uh, gerrymandering. You know, obviously you can't expect the, the Democrats and the Republicans who run the gerrymandering system to vote for any kind of bill that's going to prevent them from being allowed to do that. So there's a ballot that's being passed around right now in different states and there's a movement actually geared towards this purpose of ending gerrymandering um and mm. because it's essentially just like drawing up you know elections for yourself with these like jigsaw puzzle districts um but the only way to get such a thing passed is up being a democratic referendum um and the state legislatures are you know just as corrupt i'd say that one of the major difficulties uh, when I was a candidate for Congress is that the majority of people don't even pay attention to who their congressman is. When I was going door to door, a lot of them didn't even know who their congressman was. And when I told them things about the incumbent, they were rather shocked. Um, but the system is set up in such a way that, uh, you know, the state house, you know, and the, you know, the house, as far as like your congressman and your senators, it's obviously senators a little different because that's a statewide election, but, you know, it's much easier to gerrymander congressional mm-hmm. seats, state seats. And that system in place, you know, coupled with the fact that most people just kind of vote party down ticket and don't even pay attention to what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. in the other elections. Um, I also brought up that the, the sheriff election, um, there are people that are concerned about the way that police officers are behaving and the way that law enforcement is being handled. You know, you take an activist group like Black Lives Matter, for example, you know, if they wanted to have a serious impact on the way law enforcement, you know, was used in their country, then they would get involved in their sheriff elections. You know, there's got to be, you know, they, I mean, because they find police officers that are um, sympathetic to their cause. You know, they could get involved in the election for sheriff and try to get sheriffs elected that actually, you know, um, help mm-hmm. their cause of trying to ensure that there is not excessive police brutality. Um, these are all aspects of our democracy that people just don't pay any attention to. And that includes third party candidates, candidates outside of the box. And, um, you know, and I think that if our government is ever going to actually be, you know, for the common man, as you said, 
you know, those are two things that I think that we would have to get back to. You know, one of them in particular being, of mm-hmm. course, um, democratic referendums. A lot of people are not aware of the fact that our, as colonies, we governed ourselves for the institution of the Constitution through mm-hmm. town hall meetings, wherein people were allowed to then vote on the things that were openly discussed. And you always knew how the votes went because everybody was publicly there. Um, there wasn't any question about um, the integrity of the election because everybody was voting, you know, right there in public. Now, there are detriments to that, too. But, you know, election fraud is another major problem right now. Um, I've just had on my show a few different people who were, um, you know, more specifically Clint Curtis is a Congress, uh, Congress um, congressional candidate in Florida's 6th District. And some people might remember the video of a man mm-hmm. testifying before Congress about the problems with our election machines and how easy they are to rig. Um, it's actually really simple to write code that will allow you to rig elections. And there were people um, from the mainstream parties actively asking companies to write this software. Um, so we come back to that issue as well, which is, you know, is your election, you know, is your vote even counting? Um, when it comes to the primaries, uh, considering that we just had the the Democratic Party, for example, went on record saying that they're right. allowed to read their own elections. Um, and they did, you know. So um, I guess I'm glad that people like you are running for president. I hope that the system continues to grow when it comes to, you know, the opportunities for people like you. I, you know, like I said at the beginning of the broadcast, um, I'm concerned about the fact that none of this was ever intended in the Constitution. Um, and when I brought up the founding fathers earlier, what I was getting at was that people tend to forget that the majority of them were also fantastically wealthy and slave owners, and that even with the system that they created that is by far superior to any monarchy, you know, there were other inherent flaws involved in the situation. They didn't like democracy because at the time there were an awful lot of unpaid soldiers from the revolution and there was a real concern that those soldiers might decide to uprise against the wealthy. So they drafted a constitution that essentially, you know, wherein we, we convince everybody to elect people to represent us rather than having, you know, any kind of democratic power of our own. And then we're given a very carefully selected group of individuals who are almost always very wealthy themselves or have already essentially taken the bribe money from the wealthy. And that's how you end up with this crazy plutocratic system that we have, you know, um, wherein, you know, the, somebody actually, there's a group um, going around right now uh, that observed that bills that are going through Congress, um, that there's a 30% chance that something will pass through Congress, no matter how popular it is. As in, it could be the most unpopular item, it could be the most popular item. It doesn't change the outcome. Um, that we as people actually have a very small impact on legislation. And I think that's one of the reasons why the presidential position has become far more important than it even should be, is that um, we're now in a situation where executive orders, which were never meant to be as sweeping as they are, seem to be the only way we get any changes done, you know, unless, you know, the situation in some way supports that plutocracy. You know, that's why 
you know, people were concerned about, you know, they're very quick to get caught up in the tribalism of fighting over the two major parties. And, you know, they said, well, the Democrats did this for the COVID-19 relief. And then they were like, well, the, um, you know, the Republicans did that. And I'm like, well, let's, let's look at this very closely. The Democratic suggestion was $600 payments to poor people, um, you know, and the Republican one was, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. The Republican one was going to be like $600 direct cash payments. And then the Democrat one was, well, we're going to give you paid sick leave, but if you happen to work for a company that has over 500 employees, they don't have to pay it. Neither of the major parties gave a crap about us at all. They did have all kinds of ideas about how to funnel enormous amounts of money to the corporations and a bailout that is even bigger than the bank bailout of history. You know, um, so I've said a lot. I guess this is the, the, the environment that we are in. And the pandemic actually creates an unusual situation in that now we are in a precipice moment where people are looking again very hard at the system and it's much harder for them just to kind of turn it off and turn on their, you know, the, the bread and circuses, as the old Romans would say, to keep people placated. You know, now people are worried about meat shortages. They're worried about their job. They're worried about being locked down, you know. And as bad as these situations are, they also create a catalyst where our system and our society can change drastically. And, I mean, when you look at it in, in history, Major societal changes within a nation have always happened under these extreme circumstances. Not always good. You know, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Nazi Party, you know, are both examples of extremes that were created in those circumstances. You know, but we also have the American Revolution and the French Revolution, although rather brutal. It doesn't change the fact that it drastically changed, you know, some of the things for positives. You know, so um, I hope that, you know, over the course of your running for president that regardless of the outcome of this election that you continue to do what you're doing you know and i hope that the people that are listening to this broadcast continue to support independent media because it's changed the game you know i i've often tell people now that if you look back at 2008 candidates who spoke anything like bernie sanders would have been gone like would they, they wouldn't have gotten into the second debate um they got right. rid of people who talk like that as fast as possible and the fact that we have a system that you're not on mainstream media now, that you will have to fight to be able to get into any debates. I mean, it's only happened uh, uh, a three-party situation in debates. Like the last one was Ross Perot. And, you know, it was difficult for him, you know. So I guess that's why I told people is that it's not that the system is broken. It's working as intended. And when you study the history of our government, you find out that's unfortunately the case. Still vastly superior to a monarchy, but still not perfect. So I guess take a moment. I, you know, like I said, I said a lot of things. I kind of soapboxed a little bit there, you know. And if you had any comments on my observations, please share them with the audience. Okay. Yeah. And actually, yeah. A lot of what a lot of you, what you said uh, really rings true, and and that's really the 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 point. We're we're actually at a tipping point. You know, it's like um, if you're familiar with computers, you know. Um, we're at a point where the country is ready for a reboot, um, um, where it just needs a, a reset. You know, yeah, the, the system, I, I agree, the system's not, it's not broken, it's rigged, and it's rigged against us. Uh, and so, but it's what, what the, uh, 
the benefit of I had to say this, but the benefit of of this this crisis we're going through right now is it exposed all those dirty little secrets. And like you said, uh, you know people uh, people are in a position where now it really hurts everybody. It's not just Democrats; it's it's it's, it's Republicans; it's everybody. And everybody's starting to feel the pain, and they're starting to see how they've been uh, li- lied to and cheated. Um, it, it's starting to bring bring it to light, and people are at a position where a point now where, you know, they're sick and tired. They're they're ready for uh, they're ready for a drastic change. They're ready for changes. Um, they're 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 fed up with the the, the two parties. Um, you know, the, the as I said before, the Republicans are are blatantly, you know, uh, in the forefront of of how corrupt they are. It, and how they behave. And the Democrats, even though they, a lot of their policies or a lot of what their, their, their speak is, is for the common person, for the average person, as you've, as you've demonstrated or as you've, as you've mentioned, you know, when it comes down to it, um, they don't follow through with, uh, with a, lot of, a, a, a lot of what they promise or what they say, uh, and they compromise. And then they blame the other side. So, um, you know, the, the the country is is ready for a change, um, and and that's what I'm kind of that's what I'm kind of uh, counting on. Um, is from is from as far as my campaign is concerned, I'm enjoying the the anonymity because, you know, had I been uh, a, a more, uh, you know, prolific or more um, obvious candidate, um, you know, they would have they would have buried me. They would have you know, uh, but what I what I have the, the unique I'm in the unique position where you know in the mili- in my uh, the Marines we used to say you know by the time you see me it's too late and that's that's kind of the 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 situation I'm in I'm in right now is we're building you know we're building momentum a quiet momentum and that by the time they realize what's happened uh, the majority of Americans are going to step in and I think they're going to I think you're going to see uh, a surprising surprising change because people are just really truly fed up with the way things are going and the, and my my goal is to educate them and expose all, all this to them and 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 not get involved in 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 that all the drama uh push forward that you know that that you know we're going to bring america's american sport together that there's that it's time for change and, that, and there's it's time to bring hope back to america and and and, and stop all this uh you know this conflict and drama and manipulation, um, and and that's what that's what that's what America wants, and that's what I'm going to give them. So, um, this has been an excellent conversation. I hope that you've been happy with uh, your time here on the show today, um, and <laughs> you know, uh, I hope that the listeners will take an opportunity to look over my archives and look at other shows that I've done um, with other candidates and other topics. Um, is there anything that you wanted to give to the voter that you haven't said yet? I just want to let people know, you know, that, you know, that there is hope that we'll get through this and, and together, uh, you know, the only way forward is together, you know, uh, we win together. Um, and it's time to put, put our differences aside and, uh, come together, um, and move America forward forward. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you um, for coming on. Did I pronounce your name correctly, by the way? Yes, you did. Yes, yes. Okay, yep. good. Ironically, <laughs> ironically, like I said, I'm, I'm a runner, right? So my last name, Kuro, 
actually means I run. So my whole my whole campaign is basically based off of like a running theme or running for America. Uh, and we do, we up before the uh, the before the virus hit, we were at, we were actually um, we were planning runs. We call them uni runs uh, in every state. And so once once this, we get back to somewhat normal and we are allowed to go back out there, we're going to be doing it again. So I look forward to seeing people out there and we can get get back out there, you know, uh, moving forward. And I appreciate I appreciate inviting Ron. Uh, it's been it's been very helpful. Excellent. Well, um, if you guys are listening, you know, please consider sharing this broadcast. Uh, while I do take donations, it's been a long time since that's been a focus of mine. I'm more interested at this point in just breaking the mainstream media's hold on what we hear and what we see. So thanks again for tuning in to V Radio, everybody. And um, Brian, I'd like to talk to you briefly after the broadcast um, off the air, if you don't mind. Um, no problem. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Um, and I hope that I can see you for the next broadcast. I'm actually looking into now getting uh, somebody from TDMS Research on to discuss the exit poll deviations in the Democratic primary that are showing pretty clear evidence of election fraud. Um, my more recent broadcast, you know, if you haven't listened to it yet, I strongly advise that you listen to the two episodes that I did with Clint Curtis. Um, he was an expert on election fraud. Um, to just get an idea just how dangerous these voting machines are and how easy they are to be rigged. Uh, I've also had lots of interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, you know, um, and over the years, and it's all important information. At this point, that's pretty much what drives me is I'm doing okay financially, but I just was so frustrated with the way that the media handles things, and that includes even some of the progressive media. It just drives me nuts, you know, um, Guys like Jimmy Dore, for example, he's well-intentioned, but I don't think he's fully grasped the complexities of the political situations that he's commenting on, and I've seen him do real damage to the progressive movement in particular. Um, I also have a lot of guests on who are not progressive, so even if you are not a left-leaning person, I guarantee there will be things that you can find that you will like on B-Radio. So I'm going to leave you all with some uh, music from John Lennon and... Um, I will call you, Brian, in about four minutes. Okay, thanks. Thanks again. Have a great day. Bye, bye, bye. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small. By giving you no time instead of it all. Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school They hate you if you're clever And they despise a fool Till you're so fucking crazy You can't follow their rules A working class hero Is something to be A working class hero Is something to be 
When they've tortured and scared you for twenty-odd years Then they expect you to pick a career When you can't really function, you're so full of fear A working-class hero is something to be A working-class hero is something to be Keep you doped with religion and sex and TV And you think you're so clever and classless and free But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be There's room at the top they are telling you still First you must learn how to smile as you kill If you want to be like the folks on the hill A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Hero will just follow me If you want to be a hero will just follow me